Second Corinthians, please, in chapter 2. And whenever you get to the place, just leave your Bible uh, open there. The church at Corinth was and is probably one of the most blessed churches that are mentioned in the New Testament. You go through all the blessings that were showered upon them and they outshine almost every other church that was mentioned in the New Testament. The Word of God tells us that they came behind in no gift. It was a church that was marked by plenty of ability. And you know, dear men and women, even in this assembly here, we as leaders of this flock thank God for the ability that's here. Because the people of God and the Word of God are described as a body. Everyone working together, and that's what we want to see happen here. And this church at Corinth, while it was marked by ability, and while it came behind in no gift, and it was blessed time and time again, it was also a church that was marked by carnality. Now that word carnality is the word to be worldly. And in the church at Corinth, while there was prophets and apostles and teachers and evangelists, there was those that sat in the congregation on a daily basis and they were marked by carnality. They weren't really going on with God. Now I want to ask you a question this morning. Would that describe you? If I was to ask you a question this morning and God was to come and meet you with you and ask you the question, are you really going on with God? Maybe you would say, well, I could look back to a day in my life when I used to go on with God. Maybe you could look back to a time in your life when you said God was far more real to me then than he is now. Well, there was believers just like that in the church at Corinth. They were marked by carnality. And you know, dear friend, this morning, if that's the category that you're in, would to God even today that you and I would be so uncontent with where we are spiritually. That we would be men and women that would go through with God. You see, a carnal believer is just like a little baby. And I was watching Emily this morning and we were, we were changing her and feeding her and Charlotte was tending to her needs. But you know, if Emily never got any bigger, if she got no more mature than what she is now, there would be a problem. The doctors would have, have all the scans and the doctors would do all of the tests to see what's wrong with this little child, that there's no growth. And you know, dear friends, this morning, that's just like so many of us here today. No growth. We've got saved and we've made a profession and we've, we've changed a certain amount in our life, but there seems to be, as Alan mentioned even the other week, the handbrake comes on and we never really seem to pass through. But they're not only in this church at Corinth for those that were marked by ability and there was those that were marked by carnality. Listen to this. Because I'm just painting the picture for you this morning. There was at least one man in the church at Corinth who was involved in immorality. Now I want you to give me your attention this morning. There was one man in this church, this church that had plenty of gift, this church that God had moved upon with blessing, 
there was at least one man in that assembly who was involved in immorality, sexual sin. He was a man that was involved, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you'll read about it, Paul said, it is commonly reported among you that there's those that are involved in fornication. Now, fornication is sexual activity outside the marriage bond. It also takes in sexual activity that's unnatural, pornography, homosexuality. And there was a man in the church in Corinth who was involved in fornication, immorality. And I've been asking myself this question during the week. Would there be such a man here as that? Would there be a man in the Lifeboat Fellowship and unbeknownst to anyone else you've been indulging yourself in the lusts of the flesh? You see, God knew all about it and he revealed it to, to the fellowship there and he also revealed it to the Apostle Paul. And whenever Paul heard about it, he brings in the great truth of church discipline. And you know, dear friends, today I'm convinced in Northern Ireland one of the great lacks among us as the evangelical church we need to get back to the seriousness of sin in the house of God. You see, we don't run a sweetie shop here down in the river by the river in the hill in the valley. This is not a cattle market that you come to to talk about your financial dealings during the week. This is not somewhere where you come on a Sunday morning to hear the latest gossip or the latest news about other people. This place is described in the Word of God as the house of God. The house of God. Do you know I know of nothing more serious and more solemn than coming into the house of God? Think of that. The one that we've been singing about this morning. Crown him with many crowns. The Lord upon the throne. You know, you and I can do what we want in our own house. But this is not our house, this is God's house. And whenever Paul found out about this man in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, who was living in sin, you know, he, he brought in, as I said, this truth of discipline to deal with sin. And you and I need to be men and women in our own personal lives that will deal with sin. We need to deal with it. And just like the ivy that begins to grow at the bottom of a tree, it's so small, so insignificant, but that sin, maybe it's lust, maybe it's bitterness, maybe it's unforgiveness, whatever it is, it will grow and grow and grow, and that tremendous oak tree will die over a period of time. And dear men and women in the lifeboat, let me tell you, sin will do the very same with you and me. No matter how far you climb up the spiritual level, no matter how many verses of Scripture you and I know, we're always susceptible to sin. We always have a nature that wants to drift into sin. And you know, that's why God has placed in the church elders and overseers, shepherds in the church, so a shepherd will feed the flock. And our brother Bertie, for year upon year at this corner, has been feeding us upon the finest of the wheat. And I thank God that we've been brought up under a man who knows the word of God and has a desire to feed the people. But you know, a shepherd not only feeds the flock, we as shepherds have to lead the flock and guide the flock, but we also at times have to correct the flock. 
And that's why Paul said to Timothy, he said, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. Do you know, dear men and women, as during the week the Lord has really impressed upon me the responsibility of God's people. You and I here this morning are under the eye of God. And no matter what sort of a life we have lived during the week, we can cover it all over with our suits. We can cover it all over with our, our lovely dresses. But we cannot live in the world during the week and then come into the house of God. We can't live like a devil Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday and then put on the clothes of a saint on a Sunday. We can't do it. And as I said earlier on, this is the house of God. This is the place where God has full dominion, full sway and full control. And that's why you and I, as we come into this very house, we ought to be marked by reverence and godly fear. The fear of God. You know, the first time that you'll find the house of God mentioned in the Bible was whenever Jacob was on the run from his brother and he came to a place and he put his head down upon a stone and you'll remember how God appeared to him and he said, God is in this place and I knew it not. And he called it Bethel, the house of God. And it says that Jacob was afraid. The fear of God gripped him. That reverence and that awe of God. Peter could say that judgment must begin at the house of God. Paul said that we're not called to judge the world. We're not called to judge those that are without, but we're called to judge those that are within. Do you know, dear men and women, this morning so many of us were good at looking at the world. We've got our eye upon the homosexual and the sodomite. We've got our eye upon all the criminals and the alcoholic and the drug addict. But we need to get our eyes upon ourselves. Judgment must begin at the house of God. And that's exactly what the the leadership at Corinth did. Now I want you to cast your eye down to verse 6 of 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And after this great truth of church discipline is brought out by Paul and acted upon by the leadership, in verse 6 it says, Sufficient to such a man is the punishment which was inflicted of many. In other words, Paul says, Look, the way that you've disciplined this brother that was involved in sin, you've done it the right way. It has worked. And you know, dear friends, in the church in Jesus Christ, the reason for discipline is this. It's not to beat the flock. We're not here as leaders of this assembly to to put you down. The reason why these uh, elders at Corinth disciplined this man was because they loved him. They cared for him. They wanted to see him going on with God. And thank God this discipline led to repentance. Go on again in verse 7. So that contrywise ye ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. And you know, I want to say this morning, no matter how far you've fallen, no matter what sort of sin that you may even be involved in today, I want to tell you, dear friends, thank God there's a way back. There's a way back. 
You and I are marked by failures many, many times. But I want to thank God that he's a pardoning God. We read that and sang that this morning. Who is a pardoning God like thee? Or who is grace so rich and so free? And Paul tells these believers at Corinth, look, you've disciplined this man. And he's repented, he's sorry, and he's put away his sin. It's time that you forgive him. Now I want to ask a wee question just before I go on this morning. Is there somebody that you would need to forgive? Somebody that has wronged you in your life? Somebody that maybe has slandered you in the days that have gone by? Somebody that has hurt you and wounded you and grieved you? Blackened your testimony? Well, here were men in the church at Corinth, and Paul says, forgive. Forgive. And you and I in the church in Jesus Christ, we need a baptism of forgiveness again to forgive one another. And I say that so many of us, we harbor secret grudges. So many of us, we harbor secret wounds and hurts and ills against other people, and we can cover it over, and we can hide it from the faces of others, but God knows down in our heart, and he would say maybe to you today, Mother, it's time that you forgive. Maybe there's a man here, and someone has hurt you or wounded you. Maybe even sinned against you. Forgive. Forgive. Now, the reason why I tell you all that this morning is because of verse 11, and this is my text this morning. The reason why Paul tells these church leaders in Corinth to discipline and to forgive is in verse 11, and it says, Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. And I want to lift that text out, and I'm going to preach on it today, and God willing, next Sunday morning, and I want to talk to you about devices the devil uses among his people. Devices that the devil uses among his people. Most probably you've got a device in your pocket this morning. We live in a generation of devices, mobile phones, iPads. Device after device. And the reason why we use them is to make life easier to do the work for us. And you know, dear friends, this morning the devil has devices that he uses to do his work. Because so many times we blame him for doing things that he didn't do. And there's times when we should blame him for things that he does do. And we need to be in the word of God to discover what are the devices of the devil. What devices is he using against me? What devices is he employing in my family? What devices is he going to use among the people of God here? Because I want to tell you whenever the, the devil sees blessing. Whenever souls are being saved, whenever the presence of God is among his people, he will come. He will come. And he'll come with a device. A device in order to get the advantage. Now I want you to cast your eye to verse 11. It says, lest Satan. You know that would tell me, dear friends, this morning that we have an enemy. You'll not be too long saved. You'll not be too long on the road with God till you discover that you have an enemy. We face a threefold foe, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and he is relentless. And I'm sure some of you sitting here even this morning, you can look back over the week that's gone by, and you can say, my, the enemy came again and again and again. 
Some of you people here that are sitting and your family's maybe in a mess. And you can say, he's been relentless in my home. Relentless in my family. He never seems to back down. He comes again and again and again. And we face an enemy. We face a a foe that is relentless. I was thinking the other morning in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13. You'll remember whenever the Lord Jesus was telling the parable of the, the tares and the wheat. And the servants came to the master and says, Master, look, there's tares that are growing among the wheat. Did you not sow good seed? Ah, he said, I, grew, I sowed good seed. The problem's not with the seed. He says, an enemy has done this. And how many of us this morning can look back over our lives? How many of us can look over the land of Ulster this morning, can even look into our families and say, an enemy has done this? While men slept. And the enemy will come again and again and again. Just go through the scriptures and you'll see him at work. Just go through from Genesis to Revelation and you'll see him. And you know the devil has a desire for your life. Not only does God have a desire for my life, but the devil has a desire. You remember the Lord Jesus turned to Peter and he says, Satan has desired to have thee. That word is to beg. It's the word to ask. And you know, dear men and women, this morning, the devil would just long to destroy your testimony and mine. The devil, every moment of the day, and his hordes of emissaries and imps are watching and observing just to see if they can trip us, if they can get a weakness in our life to get a foothold and to destroy everything that God has done. We have an enemy, and he's real. And just as he desired to take Peter, he'll desire to take you. And let me tell you, you're no match for him, and neither am I. One of the greatest battle strategic men in China, way back at the start of the century, he said this, he who knows not his enemy can never win the war. Let me say that again. He who knows not his enemy will never win the war. And you know the time has come in the church of Jesus Christ in Northern Ireland that we need to discover who the enemy really is. We need to know from the word of God not only who he is, but we need to know what he does. What's his strategy? What's his plan? Well, one of the greatest ways for you to find out about the enemy is to take some of the names that are given to him in the Bible. Take some of the names that are found in the Word of God. And let me tell you, dear friend, this morning, that the devil is a mighty and a tremendous foe, and one of the names that is given to him is Lucifer, son of the morning. Just give me your attention this morning. Don't worry about anyone else. Lucifer, son of the morning. The most beautiful being that God ever created. The man, the the creature that was covered with all the precious stones. The one who was the anointed cherub. And you and I have seen some beautiful sights in our day, but we never saw anyone as beautiful as Lucifer. Lucifer, son of the morning. God could say, Thou wert perfect in all thy ways until iniquity was found in thee. 
He was wiser than Daniel. But not only is he described as Lucifer, he's described as the God of this world. And you know, dear friends, this morning we are in enemy territory. Never forget that. The Christian life is not meant to be easy. It's not meant to be a just coast along. We're in a battle. And that's why whenever you begin to pray, and that's even whenever you begin to preach, that the enemy will come time and time and time again because he is a dirty foe. That's why he'll come and accuse you in your mind. That's why he'll come and try to oppress you and suppress you and hinder you from going on with God. It says in the word of God that he has blinded the minds of them that believe not. And you know, in this meeting, if you're not saved, I want to tell you that the devil has blinded your mind. This tremendous being, the God of the world, the prince of the power of the air, he has tremendous authority. What authority he has. But not only is he described as the God of this world, he's described as the roaring lion. The roaring lion. You know, dear friends, I'm telling you that there's going to be times in your Christian experience whenever you will hear the roaring of the lion. Peter could say he's a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. Peter knew all about the roaring of the lion whenever he stood and he denied the Lord. The roar of the lion. And you know, that was the great strategy over Peter's life. He wanted to sift him as wheat. He wanted to sift Peter. You remember Job, he wanted to smash him. He took his family, he took his business. He got his very own wife to turn upon him and he wanted to grind Job into the ground. He's a roaring lion, walking about seeking whom he may devour, marked by ferocity, the power that he has, the roar of the lion. If there was a lion in this meeting this morning, we'd all run out of the room. And yet the roaring of the lion, the enemy, he stalks us and he watches us. He tries to find our weakness. And then he moves upon it. But then also he's described as Satan. He's the adversary. You'll remember whenever Paul went down and he was moving through Asia Minor, it says, Satan did hinder me. And you know, dear friends, this morning, that could be said of so many. Whenever you go, to the, go out to the prayer meeting, Satan hinders you. Whenever you seek to go on with God, Satan hinders you. Whenever you seek to do some service for him, he hinders. And he accuses Said the poet, I hear the accuser roar of ills that I have done. I know them well and thousands more, but Jehovah findeth none. The roar of the lion. Ah, he not only hinders and not only accuses, but he resists. Times whenever he stands to resist us. Times whenever he seeks to stop us really doing business with God. And this ferocious enemy comes again and again, but he's also described as the angel of light, that old serpent, the devil, and that's his subtlety. And you know, dear friends, this morning, that was the first trait of the devil in the garden. He deceived Eve through his subtlety. He deceived her. 
the most subtle being that is in the universe today is the devil himself. So subtle. My, he'll get you enticed in the things of the world. He'll get you enticed by looking at some image and then it grows upon your imagination and that lust burns in your heart until it takes over your life. You go to the drug addict or the alcoholic and he, he enticed them with a little drink or a night out and he deceived them. And you and I as the people of God, we need to be so careful that he doesn't deceive us. But I want to tell you this. That while he is marked by beauty and authority and subtlety in all the traits that he has, I want to tell you this morning, at the cross of Calvary, the devil was defeated. I want to tell you this morning, there at that center cross, there in those hours of darkness, the Lamb of God, the Prince of Peace, the Mighty God, defeated the devil. Says the word of God that Jesus Christ was manifest to destroy the works of the devil. That through death he might destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver them who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. I was singing the hymn the other morning. Who is he on yonder tree? Dies in grief and agony. Tis the Lord, a wondrous story. Tis the Lord. The Prince of Glory. And then it goes on the next verse. Who is he up from the grave? Comes to succor, help and save. And I want to praise God this morning for a living Savior. I want to praise God that down there in those dark hours at Calvary, the devil with all of his devices, the devil with all his subtlety and all his authority was defeated by one man alone. The man Christ Jesus. What a man. What a man. And that's why I love to stand in the prayer meeting and sing that lovely hymn, All hail the name of Jesus, all hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall, bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. And while the enemy is ferocious and while he comes and while he accuses, oh, thank God someone said before that the cross was the devil's waterloo. Because at the Battle of Waterloo, Napoleon got all his forces together. He thought he was going to win. But it was there that he was defeated. And there in those hours in Calvary, the Son of God dealt a blow to the enemy that he will never recover from. A defeated foe. The Lord Jesus could say to the church at Rome, he says, I will come shortly and bruise him underfoot. Bruise him. Now, having said all that, while having said that the Lord Jesus has defeated him, and while having said that the Lord Jesus rose victorious, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, I want to tell you that the devil is only in a leash. And he can still work today. He's only in borrowed time. And that's why so many of us in our lives, we are troubled by him and his emissaries on a daily basis. Cast your eye again to verse 11. It says, lest Satan should get an advantage. And you know, dear friends, us, that really means he wants to get the upper hand. And not only could we say he should get the advantage, he could get the advantage. 
And maybe there's some of us here, and if we were honest, we would look back over our life and we'd say, he has got the advantage. He's got the upper hand. My, I'm not burning for God the way I used to burn. I'm not on fire for God the way I used to be on fire. I don't have a love for the Word the way I used to have a love. I don't weep over souls the way I used to weep. I don't seem to have the same passion or desire or love for Him anymore. And the devil, Satan, has got the advantage. We've lost the fight, lost the passion, no desire to pray, no desire to go through with God. And the devil has come and got the advantage. And then go on again in verse 11 and says, Lest Satan should get the advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of the devil's devices. And I just want to lift one device out as I close this morning that the devil has been using in the church in, in Northern Ireland. One device that he has been using day after day, week after week. And the reason why he's been using it and the reason why he will still use it is because it works. And the device that I want to close by talking about is the device of division. Division. The church has never been as divided as she is today. We have more denominations. We have Presbyterian, Free Presbyterian, Reformed Presbyterian. We have Baptist, Reformed Baptist. We have Pentecostals, we have Elam. We have the Brethren, we have the Open Brethren, we have the Closed Brethren. There's those that are Calvinists, there's those that are Minion. There's those that believe in water baptism by immersion. There's those that believe by sprinkling and by pouring. There's the pre-trib, the post-trib, the mid-trib. God help us. We've never been as divided. Never. And I want to tell you every time the church of Jesus Christ has been divided, she's lost her power. Power. You take a body and you divide it, it'll die. You take a building and you divide it, it'll fall. And you take the people of God and you divide them and they'll fail. And one of the reasons why we're so powerless, one of the reasons why we seem to see so little happening is because there's so much division among us. So much contention. So much animosity and unforgiveness. So much resentment. In the book of Proverbs, you'll discover those seven sins that God hates. And the last one is he that soweth discord among the brethren. Division and contention. That was the devil's goal way back even in the Garden of Eden to bring a division between God and man, and he did it. In the first family, he brought a division between the two brothers. Cain rose up and slew his brother Abel. Down through the centuries of time, division after division. In Acts 15, you read about Paul and Barnabas. And it says the contention was so sharp among them, and they had to separate. And you read in the church of Philippi about two sisters, Udias and Syntyche. And they were at loggerheads one with another and they were fighting and they were squabbling and they were backbiting and they were criticizing one another. And Paul said, be of one mind. And all of the division and all of the contention, I want to tell you, dear friends, has rendered us powerless. All of the schisms and infighting has left us too demobilized by the enemy that the devil today doesn't even seem to have to do anything. Just stand back and watch. 
Let them fight and let them bicker and let them schism and let them go and start another church. And then whenever that one doesn't work, we'll go and start another one. And we're totally powerless. One of the great desires in the heart of God for his people is for, for unity among the people of God. And that's why in John chapter 17, as the Lord Jesus went out of the upper room, on the night that he was going to be betrayed, as he walked out past uh, the temple, and just as he was going over into the Garden of Gethsemane, he stopped and he prayed. John 17, twice in that prayer, he says, Father, oh Father, I pray that they will be one, even as we are one. Now I want to ask you a question. Is there division against you and some other brother or sister? Is there sisters in this assembly and you've been talking about another sister? Is there men in this assembly and you've been playing down and putting down another brother? Oh, do you hear the way he prays? Do you, hear, do you see what she wears? And that criticism and that negativity about other believers and we, we love to put them down so we can lift ourselves up. And the devil's just saying, look, that's my device at work. And they're taking it. My, whenever you're in the car and you're talking with another believer and you start to ridicule another saint, and the devil says they're, they're taking the device. You know, whenever you gossip and you slander and you've just taken the device and we're all guilty of it, Hands up. And this disunity that has come among us and we can conceal it and we can hide it. And so often the devil has robbed us from going on with God. Lost the joy and the passion and the vision and the burden because of the device of the enemy. That division. That separation. Now I want to close and bring you to Psalm 133, please. And I want to talk to you just for a moment about what is true biblical unity. What is true scriptural unity? For I want to tell you, dear friends, because of what God has been doing here and what God is going to continue to do in the days and the weeks ahead, we need to protect the work of God. We need to be on guard that this division doesn't come in among us, brother and brother, sister and sister. We need to be on the guard that we will be in one, one with another, this unity, scriptural unity. And in Psalm 133, Psalm 133, the psalmist David, he says, Behold, stop, just stop for a moment. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together in unity. You know, David was the king who brought all of Israel together under his reign. The twelve tribes had been fighting and schisming one among another. They'd been killing each other. And whenever David came on the throne, he united the whole of Israel under his reign. All the twelve tribes that had been fighting and bickering. And friend, this morning, that's exactly what God wants to do in this assembly. If there's animosity or bickering or gossip or slander between you and another saint, he wants to be, he wants to see you united again. He wants to see sister with sister with love and compassion in their heart. 
because he said, Behold, how good and how pleasant. In other words, there's nothing better and there's nothing sweeter whenever God's people are together. Now notice, he said, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for the brethren. The brethren. That tells me that this unity has to be based on a family. Family. You know, maybe some of you would say to me this morning, Stephen, you're my friend. Maybe some of you wouldn't say it. But maybe there would be someone here and you would say, Stephen, you're my friend. But you know, dear friends, let me tell you this, it ought to go farther. We ought to be family. Family. The family of God. Those that are really born again and saved. To have a unity. To have a love one with another. And the prayer of my heart has been during the week, Lord, give me a love for the people of God. Give me a love for the people that you love. Lord, give me that compassion and that tenderness for my brothers and my sisters in Christ. You see here, it's a family matter. We were born into this world and our father was the devil, but the morning, we were, moment we were born again, we got a new father. We got the Spirit of God crying, Abba, Father. And he says, I want you to have unity, the family of God. Let me say this this morning. The man that's not saved is not my brother. Some boy with a hard hat and a collarette who hates the gospel and who had blasphemed my Savior, he's not my brother. I couldn't call him brother. But there's some of you here this morning and you would call them your brethren. Not at all. We're not to be unequally yoked with the world. We're to come out from among them and be separate and touch not the unclean thing. And I will be a father unto you. I'm not called to have unity with some ecumenical church. I'm not called to have unity with some old ungodly man that blasphemes my saviour. I'm not to have unity with some old heretic that denies the fundamentals of the, of the faith. But I am to have unity with every true, born-again, blood-washed, saved child of the living God because that person is my brother and sister. Now, you answer me the question this morning, is it there? Is it there? This is a family matter. Not only is it to do with the family, if you cast your eye again, behold how good and how pleasant it is for the brethren, that's the family, to dwell together, that's fellowship. Now we're going to rub it in this morning. I'm getting to it now. You see, dear friends, we ought to have fellowship one with another. We're not to have fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but we are to have fellowship one with another, the people of God, fellows in a ship, you see men out rowing and they're in a ship. You know, I mentioned it the other week, maybe, me and Charlotte, we have, a, we, we have a canoe. And Charlotte, she sits in the front and she rows away and I sit at the back and throw out the fishing rod. And there's people in the ship, but they're not in fellowship. You see, I'm not pulling the weight. I'm just letting her do all the work. Oh, go here, go here. You need to speed up a wee bit. You need to slow down a bit. But you see, God wants people in fellowship not only in the ship, but fellows in the ship pulling together. People with the same desire. People with the same goal. All pulling their weight. Now let me ask you a question. Have you been pulling your weight here? Have you been rowing together? 
Whenever the mission was here a few weeks ago, were you pulling your weight? Whenever the children's mission starting tomorrow, are you going to pull your weight? And thank God for so many of you that have got in contact and you are pulling your weight, but there's some of you here that you're not. Fellows in a ship, this is the unity that God wants to see men and women pulling together. I haven't got time this morning, but go through the Acts of the Apostles whenever you go home and get that word together. It says that they came together on the first day of the week to break bread. Fellows on a ship. And you know, on a Sunday morning, all the people of God, not just two or three or ten, all the saints of God, and I know there's some of you here have family, and I know there's some have to take meetings, and I know there's things that happen on a Sunday, but one of the reasons why we meet on a Sunday is not to hear preaching, but you'll hear better than this, is to gather around the Lord and remember Him. Just a fellowship to meet upon the first day of the week to come together to remember him. Now let me ask you another question. Why, do you, why does 70% of you walk out? You see you're in the ship but you're not in fellowship. All pulling together. All rowing. Six times in the Acts of the Apostles it tells us that they came together to pray. All pulling their weight in the prayer meeting. Now you remember whenever Peter was in prison and he was bound by chains, it says, and they gathered in Mrs. Mark's house, they came together to pray. And I would encourage every single person in this assembly to come together to pray. Come together for your family. Come together for your need. Come together no matter what it is. Let us come together here in the lifeboat as a family, one for another, standing shoulder to shoulder. Whatever your need is for prayer, let us know that we can pray about it. My, whenever you get a bad day, let us know that we can pray for you. Whenever you feel the temptation laying hold upon you, oh, I feel that old sin coming back again, let us know, friends, that we can pray for you. God help us, the world is against us. The devil is against us. We ought to be together. Men and women in fellowship. Men and women pulling together. Pulling the oars. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as a manner of some is. In fellowship. Cast your eye on again. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for the brethren. That's the family. To dwell together in unity. That's the fellowship. Verse 2. It is like the precious ointment upon the head. That's the fragrance. You know there's a fragrance in the house of God. Whenever men and women are in unity together. There's a fragrance that goes into the nostrils of God itself. Whenever there's an aroma of unity one with another. An aroma. One of the things that God has laid in my heart in the early hours of the other morning whenever I was lying before him, you know what he said to me? He said, Stephen, I would love to have an aroma in my church, but so often there's a stink in the house of God. There's a stink in the house of God. No longer have we got that sweet aroma. No longer is there that permeating presence of God. And he says it's like the precious ointment. And the ointment always speaks of the Holy Spirit, the oil. Friend, I want to say this to you this morning. You and I as the people of God, we need to have the oil. 
We need to have the Holy Spirit upon our lives. We need to be filled with God, the Holy Ghost. We need to have Him permeating our being. Because whenever He takes up residence in our heart, the bitterness and the criticism and the unforgiveness will go. To have the blessed Holy Spirit, like the precious ointment that was upon the head and ran down the beard and down the garments, it didn't touch the flesh. It didn't touch the flesh. The Holy Spirit won't touch the flesh. So often the schisms and the bitterness is all because of the flesh. Finally, cast your eye again. It says, Behold, and how good and how pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down the beard, even Aaron's beard. It went down to the skirts of his garment as the Jew of Hermon and as the Jew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. I want to tell you, see that word life there? It's the Hebrew word for revival. Revival. Put your hand up this morning if you want a revival. Put your hand up. Well, I want to tell you this morning, one of the greatest recipes for revival is unity. Unity. For there God commanded the blessing, even revival forevermore. Before a word was said, before a word was preached, before a hymn was prayed, I'm going to command the blessing there. And one of the desires of our heart as we move out, even into this children's mission and on down into the next year, is that you and I would get into the fellowship, men and women, pulling our weight together, praying for one another, loving one another, having a care for one another. I want to tell you it's there that God's going to command the blessing. In 1727, there was a group of people, and this will finish. They were Christian refugees running from persecution in Europe. And there was a young man by the name of Count Sintensdorf in Germany who opened his estate to those believers. And they began to meet in his estate and they schismed and they fought and they bickered and they criticized one another. Do you hear how he prays? Do you see how she prays? Do you hear, the, do you hear what he does? Do you see what she does? And they fought and they bickered for months. And Count Zinzendorf was only a young man and he got them together and this is what he did. He says, I want you believers to sign a love pact one with another. And you know they got down. Men, oh, more godly than what I am. And they got down and they signed and said, we will love one another. We want true scriptural unity. We want to come on the foundation of the word of God and the fundamentals and we want to come together as a group of God's people. And you know it was in the month of August and the 13th of August that God sent revival among the Moravians and at a prayer meeting that lasted for over a hundred years. They sent more missionaries out over the world than any other group of people. Because there was unity one with another. They loved one another. They had the blessing of God upon them. Now I'm finished. But I wonder after this meeting, is there somebody you need to go and see? Somebody maybe for years that there's been that awkwardness and that contention. 
and no one else knows anything about it. But it's been festering for year after year. And if they came into the meeting this morning, you would try to avoid them. You wouldn't really want to shake their hand. You'd maybe go out the other door. But there's no unity there. Well, you would need to go and see that person. And you know, dear friends, whenever you and I come as the people of God with unity, real scriptural unity, there the Lord commanded the blessing, even revival. Would to God that he has send it even among us, that you and I will be a people that will be used by the Lord. Let us pray.